Greetings, I'm Ann Markham-Bailey, host and producer of the Practice of Being series on Present Tense. In this series, I combine brief guided awareness practice episodes with longer interview episodes. I reached out to people who embody the quality of practice of learning to become more fully human through connection, through plugging into the power of being on and of this planet, rather than continuing to engage in the destructive fallacy of human dominion. In this episode, I connect with Joan Maloof, Professor Emeritus at Salisbury University, author of Teaching the Trees, Among the Ancients, and other books, and founder of the Old Growth Forest Network. Her passion and commitment are to save old growth and second growth forests from destruction for the well-being of us all. I reached out to Joan through Janice Barrett, Outreach and Education Coordinator for Wild Alabama, whose mission is to enjoy, value, and protect the wild places of Alabama. Janice and I team up to offer forest bathing immersions in the Bankhead National Forest through Wild Alabama. Joan is interested in adding the Sipsi Wilderness in the Bankhead National Forest to the Old Growth Forest Network. You'll hear her reference the Sipsi in the interview. Joan is a visionary. She thinks big, like the forests that she loves to protect. When I asked Joan what she would do if she could make any changes that she wanted on a global level, she said that she would end war as a human process. She would stop the massive military investments in our own destruction and would direct those funds towards purchasing land across the planet to protect for perpetuity on behalf of all of being. I put some questions before Joan, and she graciously offered her time and thoughts in late October 2021. So I think the challenge is that so many of us are waking up to see how important nature in all her forms is to our well-being, whether it's our physical well-being, the well-being of the overall planet in terms of clean air and clean water, or whether it's our emotional being to share our time here on Earth with a healthy planet and what that means for us emotionally. The challenge is, as so many of us are waking up to that and realizing that, at the same time, there are other humans on the planet that are acting as if that's not important to them at all. Now, perhaps it is, and they're motivated by something else more strongly, such as greed, but perhaps it's not important to them at all. So then the question becomes what we can do about this. And it can be approached in two ways. Yes, we can help more people wake up by giving them the experience of being in a spot on the planet where things are working ecologically and are healthy and are beautiful. But if we're not able to do that with everyone and get them to come around fast enough, then perhaps we need to 
protect this planet with rules and regulations and laws because right now it feels like those that aren't in touch are in the highest positions of power and instead of the planet leaning more toward healthier and wholer, it seems to be leaning in the other direction. So often, humans, we've given our power away and we think, oh, the government will take care of it or someone else will take care of it. They will make sure that we preserve, let's say, forests because that's what I'm interested in. But what I see is that the government's are not really protecting the forest. When you look at all these places that are in government hands, almost all of them have been protected by citizens that have spoken out and said, this place needs to be preserved. My organization, the Old Growth Forest Network, when we enter a forest into the network and we dedicate it in, we have a place where we record how that forest got protected. And so many times those stories go back to individuals or small groups that spoke out in the very beginning to protect that land. And then it eventually became public land. So those stories go on and on and on. And we need to realize that, that this possibility of protection for our forests is going to be up to the citizens and not up to the politicians. For instance, this spring I visited a forest in Ohio, beautiful old growth forest, now belongs to the town, but it was just a high school teacher that saw this piece of property for sale and he knew it needed to be preserved, so he purchased it and was so inspired by that, they kept adding to it, then eventually turned it over to the town, and now the town keeps adding to it, and it's open to the public. And it's just one example of these beautiful stories. If you like, I can tell you a story about one of the forests that I helped to preserve. This was in the town of Salisbury, Maryland, and there was a city park that was forested, not old growth, but older. So second growth forest, meaning it had been cut once, grew back, was probably 80 to 90 years old, had a stream, fairly extensive, over 70 acres. And right next door to that city park forest was a county park that was just ball fields. No trees at all other than in the parking lot. Well, the county wanted to create more ball fields so they could have tournaments there and bring in more money. So the county said to the city, why don't you give us the park and we'll put in more ball fields? Well, the city was going to do that. And the reason was because the city politicians, the government, the councilors, whatever name that you have for them in your particular town, the town council, they didn't have any experience in that forest. They'd never been there. To them, it was just sort of empty green space. So sure, we'll give it to the county so they can bring in more money. Well, it just took 
a few citizens hearing that, myself and a couple other people. I had a meditation group that was meeting at the time in my house, and when we heard about this, we decided that we could not let this happen because this was a beautiful old forest that many people use for recreation. So we just kept showing up at city council meetings, and in the end, we had more people than had ever attended a city council meeting, standing room only, speaking for the forest, and the city finally decided not to turn it over to the county, and that forest stands to this day. And it has a permanent forever wild easement on it, so it will be there always. <laughs> and it's so great to walk through that forest now and know how close it came to being cut down and that it was just citizen activism that got it saved. Another example from just this week was on a college campus, University of Maryland College Park, very urban college, and there was a 11-acre parcel of forest, again, not old growth, but older forest, a natural space with a stream, carbon sequestering forest, animal habitat forest, and the university decided that they were going to sell this forest to a developer who would cut it down and create graduate student housing. The president of the university was in favor of that, and when students spoke out against it, he said that they were being overly emotional. <laughs> so, of course, it's not just an emotional issue. It is emotional, but it's also the very life of our planet that we're trying to preserve. So just yesterday, I heard that um, because of all the pressure that the students and groups such as the Old Growth Forest Network put on the university that they canceled the plans to sell the forest to a developer. So, yay. The Old Growth Forest Network was a vision that I had while I was working on my book called Among the Ancients. I was visiting one of the Old Growth Forests in each of the 26 eastern states, and that was when I visited Gypsy Wilderness and the Big Tree mm -hmm. on those travels, and that's what I write about in that book, Among the Ancients. But the vision was that we should have a forest in each county that would never be logged again, open to the public, and relatively accessible. And if we can preserve even just one forest in each county, then there would be an example for people to see of unlogged forests. And when they see those forests, I'm convinced that then they'll want to protect more. They'll realize how important they are. Now, the vision for the Old Growth Forest Network, one in each county, is a huge vision for one person to have because there's over 3,000 counties in the U.S., some of those counties do not support forest growth because there's deserts or prairies only, but over 2,400 of those counties can support forest growth. So that's our goal. Well, you know, started out with one person, <laughs> myself, trying to do this, and I knew that I would need help 
So I formed a 501c3 with a wonderful board, and people have been financially supporting this work. So now our staff has been able to expand a little bit, but still we don't have enough people that we can do this work in every county. So we depend on a volunteer from each county. We call them our county coordinator. And that volunteer would look around in that particular county, talk to the people that knew things about the old forests, and see if there were any older protected forests in that county that would be good for the network. And sometimes the county coordinators find a good forest, but it's not protected, and we may help getting protection on it. Or sometimes the forest is just so obvious in that particular county that they don't have to look around for long. And that's the case in Sipsi in Alabama. We know that that old-growth forest there in the wilderness will be ideal to add to the old growth forest network. It's protected, it's open to the public, it's relatively accessible. But we still need to take the steps to put it into the network, to get it on our website, to have a dedication ceremony, to create a relationship with the federal government, in this case, the management of that forest, and that's where our county coordinator can help us. Right now, we're seeking a county coordinator volunteer for Lawrence County in Alabama to help us with that. And we now have, across the country, 300 volunteers. So we're still building the network, so if anyone's interested in helping us, they could go on our website, oldgrowthforest.net, see if their county still needs a volunteer, and hopefully volunteer, and we'll tell them what the steps to take are to help to get a forest in the network. The time commitment, it varies. For instance, if we've already identified a forest, because we take nominations all the time, then it's very easy. Then it's a matter of just helping move things along. It may be less than 10 hours, but if your county has either no nominations or a number of different nominations, then you need to get take some hikes and go out and check out these forests for yourself and let us know which one you think would best meet our criteria. And then when it's time for the dedication, these are so fun, and we um, usually plan a hike into the forest. We invite the people that have helped preserve that forest. We have speeches and photos, and sometimes the press is there just to celebrate that particular forest. And we hang up the sign that it's in the Old Growth Forest Network, and then really your work is done, so it's a time-limited commitment. And then after that, you would just need to keep an eye on it and let us know if there were any threats to that forest. So far, the Old Growth Forest Network has 146 forests in 27 states. We are 10 years old, so we've been making good progress, but we still have a ways to go. 
I do believe it's not an impossible dream. I'm inspired by looking at the idea of the national parks and how that started out very slowly, but how it's grown beyond the lifetimes of the people that originally had the idea, and now it is so important and special to the citizens of the country. And I feel that someday the Old Growth Forest Network will be that way, that no matter where somebody's traveling or where they move to or where they're living, that there will be a protected, open-to-the-public forest nearby. Even if we're cutting others for crops, that there will be some that are natural. They are constantly capturing pollutants from the atmosphere and converting them so that the atmosphere is healthier for us, I'll say. So all the things we do, all the dust and all the exhaust that we put into the air, all the sprays that we're spraying, all the pipes coming up from the factories, they're all emitting things such as particulates, nitrogen oxide, sulfur oxide, other toxins, and those trees are capturing all those things. So they're capturing those particles from the air, just like a filter would from from your house. Those particles are then held on those leaves, and when it rains, those particles fall down and then become part of the earth instead of staying suspended and going into our lungs. Things like the nitrogen oxides and sulfur oxides from our burning our fossil fuels, they are not just captured by the trees. They are transformed and made into non-harmful particles by the trees. And the trees are also taking in carbon dioxide, as we know very well. Carbon dioxide is building up in our atmosphere because we're burning these fossil fuels and because we're removing so many of our forests. So the forests can't keep up with the carbon capturing and storage. If we weren't burning fossil fuels and if we had a healthy forest cover on the planet, the carbon dioxide would not be increasing. So anything we can do to keep forest cover will help slow the rate of the carbon dioxide increase. Now, I don't really think of carbon dioxide as a pollutant myself because it's not directly harmful to us, but when it builds up enough that it creates a warming atmosphere and a wilder atmosphere, which we're seeing right now, then it can be indirectly harmful to humans through sea level rise and through these stronger storms. All forests clean the atmosphere in the ways that I described, and all forests also help control water runoff. They capture rainwater. They change the soil so that the water, rainwater lands more slowly. It can be absorbed into the soil, and in that way they prevent surface runoff and they prevent erosion. They're also cleaning the water at the same time 
and in the same way that the forests clean the air. So those are things that are very useful for humans, of course, to keep us healthy, but they're also important for the other living things in the forest, right? If a fish are going to be in the stream, they need clean water. Animals on the planet also need clean air the same way we do. And the forests also provide habitat for these other living things, so many of them, right? We can go on from the salamanders to the frogs to the lichens to the to the weasels and on and on and on. So all forests do these things, but the older a forest gets, the better it is at all of that. So the old-growth forests that have never been cut are better at cleaning the air they are better at cleaning the water. They are better habitat for animals, and so many more species can live in those forests. And in part, it's because their structure gets more and more complex over the centuries, really, as they develop. So more places, more plants to filter the air and capture the water, and provide habitat. So I, I live in a small town myself, and there are beautiful trees in our town, and I know that they're very important for the health and beauty of our community, too. I see birds that live in the trees and squirrels that live in the trees, and I know that those trees are cleaning the air and they're helping absorb some of the storm water. So they are certainly good for our community, but our community has nowhere near the other life forms that we find in a forest. And one reason for that is because many of the trees in the urban tree canopy right now aren't native trees, so they're not providing um, food for the things that the birds that live here and the insects that live here. And also, as trees get big and old and have hollow spaces, they get removed because they're thought of as hazards to either houses or roadways. And certainly when a tree falls down, even if it's in a yard, that tree is removed because it doesn't look so good. But in a forest, if that tree gets big and old and hollow, it's left standing. And that's creating habitat for a lot of insects and a lot of fungi and a lot of other organisms. And the fallen trees, too, are habitat for mosses and lichens and fungi and on and on and, and ground beetles. So... In the suburbs, we don't have all of those organisms that we'd have in the forest. Also, in the forest, you're going to have the leaf litter that's left there undisturbed. It's not going to be a lawn that's mowed. So automatically, in the suburbs, you're going to remove things that would live in that leaf litter component. Now, a shopping center is one step beyond that because you might only have, instead of lawn, you have asphalt. <laughs> so 
that soil cannot even absorb any of the water from the rain, and it all runs off, and it's highly polluted when it runs off because it's captured all the particles that all the tires and all the cars have emitted, all those pollutants and all the things that people poured out of their cars and the cigarette ashes, and that goes right into the the streams via the ditches. So we don't have a living soil under a shopping center. Now, when you go into that shopping center, yeah, the atmosphere can be cool, and you're not going to be getting any ticks or chiggers. But if you really could see all those things that are for sale in that shopping center came indirectly from the earth, directly, indirectly, right? There's nowhere else that stuff can come from. We're not importing things from other planets. It's all from right here. Even the things that are manufactured, like the plastics, we need the plants to make that in, which come from the metals from the earth, or we need the energy, which comes from wherever, but it's right here on the planet. So if we don't have a intact planet, we are pretty soon not going to have those products. So right now, we're living in a time where we're using up the Earth's products faster than they can replenish themselves. And someday that's going to make a difference. (laughs) So you may be able to walk in a shopping mall today and be in air conditioning and see lots of things, but unless we protect more of the planet, that won't be true in the future. There are many different ways to make a difference for the planet, but first, you have to care at least a little bit. If you don't care at all, then we have to look at how you were raised or the experiences that you've had when you were younger. And that's one of the reasons that we have the old growth forest. So there are places where young people can go and experience the forest and develop that relationship so they will care in the future. But let's say people care, but they don't have the time to get too involved. Well, there's where um, you can help share some of your green energy, we call it. You might want to donate to an organization such as, you know, the Alabama organizations, Old Growth Forest Network organizations, your land trust, and those organizations can then do the work for you because they they need to be supported as well. Other folks that really care but don't want to get activist or political can possibly purchase some forest land and protect it themselves. And I've seen that done, and it is a joyful experience for those people. Um, So many folks have money in the bank and a 401K, and they're saving for retirement. Well, imagine if some of that money, maybe a quarter of it, was in the land instead, a living, growing forest that's providing habitat and clean air and clean water instead of just numbers in a bank. Another thing I would say about 
the activism and saving forests. It doesn't have to be gloom and doom and, you know, you don't have to get angry about it. I've had some of the best experiences of my life, some of the most fun in meeting with small groups of people, figuring out how we're going to do this, getting these forests saved, talking to the press about what we believe in. Uh, It can be really fun. (laughs) It's not necessarily hard work. In building the Old Growth Forest Network, these are all publicly accessible forests, but in the meantime, I was meeting people that had their own private forests that they cared about deeply, that they were foregoing the income that they could have gotten from cutting down these forests just because they believed that they needed to be preserved for their own enjoyment as well as for the health of the planet. And I realized that we wanted to recognize these folks too. So we started something called the Private Old Growth Forest Network. And these are privately owned forests that the owners have made the commitment they're not going to log their forest. They don't even need to have a legal easement on it. They've just made the personal commitment. And then we send them a sign and welcome them into the Private Old Growth Forest Network. And those forests are not open to the public. One of the reasons we do this is because many people who care about forests like this and own these forests, they're going to pass on. You know, we all are. And then what happens to their forest? So we wanted to recognize them as a way to show their friends and family that this mattered to them, that they made this personal commitment, and hopefully the family will uphold that commitment after they're gone. Whatever happens to this planet is going to happen to all of us. We're all on the same planet, right? We're all the same species, and we're all on the same planet, and whatever happens to this planet is going to happen to all of us. So I believe that we need to have a stronger planetary body to help with this. Uh, And it makes sense that that would come through the UN. I don't think we can do this country by country. Otherwise, you'll have maybe half the countries protecting their forests and half the countries are not, and it's going to affect all of us for those that aren't protecting it. So we need to recognize that we are one species on one planet. Think globally. And we, as part of this, we need to stop using wars to end conflicts. That is just so ridiculous that so many of our planetary resources are going into the war machines so we can kill each other. All the materials that come out of the earth that go into the planes and the bombs and all the fuels used on that and just the human life energy. So if we could end that military spending and use that instead to help maybe purchase more of the surface of the planet and protect it or to support people that want to teach others about the planet, um, so many things we could do with that spending. 
and be proactive about land preservation instead of reactive. You know, we should be looking for these places to preserve. I'm going to be listening to a Zoom presentation Monday night where they're going to talk about mapping the oldest forests that are left on the planet and how we find them. Well, once we do that, I think the next step should be to help preserve some of them and um, turn some of that governmental attention from the military to doing something like that. Um, that's what I would put into motion. <laughs> Many humans now, and I don't know how we got to this point, but for them, this number in the bank, you know, these dollars, if you want to call them, they're not even dollars, they're decimal points in the bank. <laughs> these digits that we see are more important than a beautiful, healthy living planet. Right, And that makes no sense, but it still is happening, and what we're doing is rewarding the greed that is destroying the ecological integrity. And as long as people are rewarded for that greed by getting more digits in their number in the bank, it just feels like it's very difficult to change because even if the folks that think that way are in the minority, you know, the 1%, it still goes on. For example, there's an old growth forest about an hour from where I live. It was privately owned. Nobody really knew it was old growth because it was a private forest. And it got sold to a 92-year-old man who bought it only because he wanted to log it because he knew that he would get a lot of money from logging it. So as soon as he bought it, he immediately went into contract with a mill owner nearby, and the mill owner sent his workers out there to market and tell him how much he would get for it. We've stepped in, we saw the markings, you know, were shocked, found out what was happening, offered to pay for, to keep those trees standing. You know, we weren't asking him just to not log out of the goodness of his heart. He would still get the money. And he said no. So a beautiful old growth forest, maybe the last one in that county, Talbot County, Maryland, will be cut down and it will be perfectly legal to do so because it's private property and the person that wants to cut it has a contract with somebody else that's willing to cut it. So that just does not seem right to me. It feels like they are taking away from everybody else, including the future generations. So we need to... Just not leave it up to chance that places like that are saved. I think we need to get a lot more active in both creating laws so that can't happen and in actively preserving these places that are possibly still in private hands. And I'm all for personal freedoms, but what we're doing now 
is affecting the earth beyond our lifetimes. For instance, when they were first imagining national parks, it was the survey team that went in to survey Yellowstone area. And they were sitting around the campfire and they were imagining what should be done with that area. And somebody said, oh, there'll be, you know, this kind of business and that kind of business and these tourisms and this sort of ranching and that sort of logging. And somebody else said, you know, this should not belong to private business people. This Yellowstone area is so special. It should belong to all of the people in the nation. And that's where the vision for our national park system came about. So we need to, I think, keep visions like that alive, that a beautiful, healthy planet should belong to all of us. And we shouldn't give that up just because some people can make money by destroying it. Lots of ways to participate with the Old Growth Forest Network by... um, possibly inviting me to give a talk somewhere and spread the news. But even more than that, I would like people to look around where they live and understand their landscape and ask themselves the question of where is the oldest forest that they know of in their area. It can be their community or their county. And once they've looked around and thought about that, then try to find out who owns that forest. And maybe even talk to the owners. It could be that it's owned by your city or county and state, but <laughs> could be a public forest and you want to make sure that it's preserved. But it could also be a private forest. And in some cases, these older private forests the owners don't realize what they have. And they may even sometimes be urged by forest managers that, you know, this is the right time to cut it and you want to get some income from it. So unless you're proactive in looking around and talking to the owners, you may come by the next week and that forest could be cut down or it could be sold for development. So just being aware of what is happening is very, very important to have eyes on the local forests. I use an app called LandGlide, and it will tell you exactly who owns the land, and it even gives you a contact and tells you what they paid for it the last time. You can get a lot of information like that online. If you have a street address, you can also go to your the property tax maps that are online for your state, and you can learn who owns it that way. Sometimes all it takes is talking to an owner and saying, hey, did you know that your forest is really special? You have one of the oldest forests that I've seen around, and just getting conversation with them about that. Have you ever considered about protecting your forest? Have you ever considered you know, XYZ, selling it to the state as a natural area, talking to a land trust about it, all kinds of conversations we can have that can help save these forests. Another thing we do is to help speak out for these threatened forests. So, for example, 
the University of Maryland College Park Forest, I wrote a letter to the college president and let him know that I represented the thousands of people that are supporters for the Old Growth Forest Network and that we believed it was a mistake to sell that forest to a developer. And I listed all the ecological reasons we've been discussing about why it should be saved. And I don't know if that was the thing that made a difference, but something made a difference in all the things that we did to where he changed his mind, and now the forest will stay standing. I would say that there's a push now, even from some of our state governments and federal government forest departments, to manage forests by cutting out pieces of of it that they say is good for wildlife or good for fire reduction. And often when you hear these reasons, they sound good, but if you really have an opportunity to dig into the scientific information, you'll find that it's not really true, that these cuts are not helping wildlife and they're not helping prevent fires. So... I would just say to be educated about some of these forest management practices that are being done in our names right, with our tax dollars. And that's one of the reasons that I write books about the forest is to share some of the scientific information. So my first book, Teaching the Trees, was about the relationship of all the living organisms in the forest to the trees and how the trees create that habitat for these living beings. And then among the ancients was visiting the old growth. I encourage people to get out there and see an old growth forest for yourself so you understand it. And that book has directions. And then Nature's Temples was about the scientific evidence that these older unmanaged forests are the healthiest forests not the ones that are undergoing cutting and thinning. That Nature's Temples book is being revised and expanded right now as we learn so much more. You know, we're learning so much more about the mycorrhizal networks in the forest. We're at learning more about the carbon sequestration of the trees. So I'm adding, updating Nature's Temples. I have a brand new book that just came out. It's a, a fun little book called Treepedia for people that like to just pick up little snippets and learn about different trees, different forests, different forest advocates. And I have a coffee table book called The Living Forest. So I hope to keep writing and speaking and advocating for the forest that somehow that has been what this life has called me to do. And i do it joyfully. For more information about Joan Maloof and to donate to the important work of the Old Growth Forest Network, go to oldgrowthforest.net or just check the show notes for links. To learn more about and join in the wonderful work of Wild Alabama, go to wildal.org and check the show notes. Discover the practice of forest bathing and sign up for an in-person or online immersion 
at forestbathingalabama.com. Get your copy of The Practice of Being. If you're interested in learning to move out of the confines of mental ruts and into the power of being, this book is for you. You can also check out the workbook and online course. Learn to open to the power of being alive. Look for the link in the show notes. Until next time.